Brett Winton from Mark Invest explains why investing within Innovation Now will warrant exceptional returns. In addition, we're going to look at Tesla and Palantir. Where are they on the S-curve within a recent article on Dantons.com? And also, Codestrap, why he believes Palantir Data Mesh is going to change the future for the company. You're watching Dantons. So, Interestingly, Brett Winton from ARK Invest is down big, and I've noticed a recent shift in the past few weeks and months in which points towards growth stocks um, and generalization of growth stocks in, in which is, is demonized. And I disagree with this notion. I think that there, there are um, some growth stocks in which in recent times, rightly, had major value compressions due to poor fundamental features, major hype, highly competitive environments, the lack of fundamental technologies, whatever it is, I do understand the value compressions for the vast majority of technology stocks, for value stocks, and even growth stocks. But I disagree with this notion of a demonization of growth stocks as a whole. I think 99% of them probably aren't the best investments, but perhaps is a 5% portion, a 1% portion of growth stocks in which have the potential to change the future, in which have the potential to capitalize on some trends, namely the data trend, namely the autonomous capabilities trend, namely the AI trend, and these innovative um, technologies in which are going to um, disrupt solutions as we know it today. I think that that is a viable thesis to have. And for me, Palantir is one of those companies in which has amazing fundamental features, as well as high quality revenue, as well as the capabilities to produce exceptional returns based on their technological advantage, their organizational culture and talent and a range of other issues. But the main point I'm making here is Brett Linton pushes forward the idea that investing now within equities, specifically innovative equities, probably will, is, is a good idea. And I agree with him slightly. He mentions how, in a quote, it is very, very unique this time period. And actually, within technological and economic history, we've probably never seen anything like this beforehand. At ARC, the analysts have noticed how innovations are converging. This is specifically present within the past 12 months. Almost every consuming-facing strategy has an NFT plan in place, he said, which is kind of comical in my opinion. Uh, this is where I disagree with him, right? He, he goes on a, a, on the rampage of uh, this philosophy of innovation, which is something I totally agree with, but then he goes and picks an NFT and, and a kind of trivial um, Web3 asset in which I'm very pessimistic about. Perhaps that's for a later time. He mentions people often mistake volatility for risk and the set of possibilities out there is very broad. And therefore, it's vital to have a longer-term vision. Furthermore, Brett mentions how the rate of growth suggests that the market capitalization attributed to innovation will meaningfully exceed the market capitalization of default equities. And there actually are some similarities here between emerging markets and innovation uh, within the past 10 years. Brett pointed towards the similarities between innovation now and emerging markets. People could see GDP was going to recruit in the emerging markets and therefore individuals deployed equity towards these emerging markets in order to benefit from the gain. We believe the same is true for innovation, he mentioned. In other words, back in the 1980s, individuals were very pessimistic in regards to investing within emerging markets. However, there was a value accrual over time and individuals deployed capital to these areas after recognizing the growth that was going to come. Brett says this is the same for innovation. People are scared of investing within innovation now. People think it's a total fallacy, it's a total fad. Many of these companies will not succeed. They're diluting majorly, which some of the claims are true. However, the overall narrative that he's pushing forward is actually that these innovative companies are going to change society, produce exponential growth, 
create winner-takes-all markets and therefore uh, will capitalize on some great trends in which he believes value will eventually um, go towards these areas. In response to some interesting uh, criticism, Brett has hit back and Kathy too is, is always appearing on CNBC with Jim Cramer, um, who's, in my opinion, trying to defend the fund. I think that's probably a bad idea. Um, but in addition, we have a quote which kind of validifies the previous points. We believe a strategic allocation to innovation will probably evolve into sub-asset class, as did the niche strategy of 1980s emerging markets. ARK Invest mentions within a recent interview how the late 1980s and 90s, investors had, if any, little exposure to what evolved into a 13% of the global equity market capitalization and 60% of global gross domestic product on purchasing power basis. Once again, reiterating the point that I made previously, the idea that innovation in the future, according to ARK, is going to accrue to high valuations and therefore it's better to be in front of this trend in comparison to against it. Initially, many investors resisted exposure to developing markets based on the volatility associated with geopolitical uncertainties, corporate governance and liquidity. With time, however, these investors observed the low correlations between and among the stocks returned in the various de developing nations as well as growth rates that surpassed those in the developed world. So therefore, investors concluded that it's perhaps logical to deploy some capital towards these emerging markets back in the 1990s and 80s. Arc, once again, reiterating the view that perhaps this is going to occur within innovation. They are very strong on this and believe it's better to be in front of the wave than behind it. This is because Arc believes that innovation is going to exceed a capitalization of market by over 200 trillion by 2030. Arc states how this period is going to be an unprecedented period of technological change, and historians will look back on this area as one of unprecedented technological momentum and will say everything has changed, he mentioned within a recent quote, Brett Winton. Interestingly, I've kind of theorized over this, and I, once again, due to the time of my life, due to my investment philosophy, due to my risk profile, I'm very happy taking a more concentrated portfolio and investing within what one may call riskier assets, namely Tesla, namely Palantir, um, and some other interesting companies. I think that that's fine for me. However, you have to acknowledge that also, Many other people don't want to do this. Many other people are at a completely different stage of their life, maybe trying to retire early or invest in a pension or just accrue wealth or just have some fun. So overall, the notion of investing within innovation, the overall risk profile of investing within innovation is very personal. And I don't think that many people should give too much advice when it comes to uh, deciding a risk profile. But it's interesting to take into consideration a range of other opinions. I think personally, and I've theorized over this in recent times on Dantons.com, the potential for innovation actually to stagnate even further. Fairly contrarian view, may say, is the fact that I believe innovation in the past 20, 30 years has stagnated majorly. For example, within the scene of the internet, there's been huge innovations, but aside from the internet, not much has actually changed. For example, the healthcare scene is still reactive instead of proactive. For example, the idea of 3D printing houses, why has this not occurred? Why are we not even working on this? The idea of life longevity has stagnated too. Overall, I think there's ample examples of innovation stagnating, aside from perhaps you could say the internet, in which caused a major um, fundamental shift for society. I think as well, it's very, very pessimistic for uh, the vast majority of investors to disregard innovative companies. I'm very optimistic for the future. I hope the future is good. I want the future to be good and I will work on the future being good. And I also think allocation of capital towards the future is a very noble goal. That's just a personal opinion and perhaps one may call it fairly ludicrous, but it's my philosophy.
Interestingly, AI and the proof of robotaxi networks is working. And this is something I've theorized over too, because you could argue successfully that many people in the past, in the 1980s, in the 1990s, in the year 2000, believed that the future was going to be good. What is different now and then? Why is the difference um, so, so superior in, in terms of ensuring that innovation in the future is going to accrue uh, to massive results? You could argue successfully that once again, we're in another thought bubble. The idea of innovation not actually going to meaningfully change the, the, the future in the next five, 10 years at all. Perhaps we're just in, in, in another kind of dot-com bubble type momentum. But actually, this is disregarded by ARK Invest. And interestingly, the idea of robotaxi networks working is fascinating. There's proof now. One reason to be optimistic, says Brett Winton, on the idea of a robotaxi is because of fundamental innovations happening to AI and the neural net space. Brett mentions how ARK is very optimistic on AI, solely based on technological breakthroughs in which have occurred in the past year alone. Interestingly, within the AI space, natural language processing has been a major breakthrough in which can be attributed towards the likely scenario in which robotaxis are solved, said Brett Winton. This shows the fundamental capabilities of the neural net. And interestingly, ARK Invest mentioned within their exclusive report that they expect sales to increase roughly eightfold from 4.8 million units for Tesla in 2026 to upwards of 40 million units 2030. Globally, this is roughly a 53% compound annual growth rate per year. And one reason for the major increase within vehicles sold is driven by the battery cost declines. Primarily, the ARC analysts use the idea of Wright's law as a viable leading indication into the future of cost declines for Tesla. Wright's law basically hypothesizes that cumulative production is associated with cost decline. In other words, there's an association between cost declines and output increases. It's basically the theory of economies of scale. Wright's law holds for the idea that as there is a double in cumulative production within the concept of, let's say, a tangible asset, this is associated with a 20% cost decline. And obviously, this can lead to a flywheel of innovation if costs are declining, as well as the increase uh, within output. Summerlin is an analyst at ARC who solely focuses and specializes on AI technologies. And he mentions how he's very excited for the opportunity of foundation models in which not many people know about. Bull mentions how the larger AI models are often is a very good leading indication in terms of the quality of performance. For example, the use of Google's AI technologies in their search engine. As more searches occur over a period of time, the smarter the model gets and therefore leading to kind of exponential growth in terms of the capabilities and the superiority of their search model in comparison to Yahoo. This is a trend in which is going to continue, says Will, and this has been seen across many other language models and a range of other AI technologies. And interestingly, a foundation model basically refers to training a single huge system on a large amount of general data and then adapting that system to a new problem. And this interlinks to the new future of AI, in which refers to AI being flexible, reusable models in which can be applied just to just about any domain or task. This is kind of the philosophy of Tesla. This is why many believe Tesla has a high valuation. If they can crack the robotaxi idea, if they can successfully solve real-world AI, this can be applicable to many other domains or tasks. Many people think it's far too speculative. I'm not sure. I think there's a fair possibility that they, that they can. I think also that there are major challenges in the way. But if they do, this would warrant a much higher investment in comparison to traditional car companies. One issue that I'm seeing very regularly that I disagree with is the notion of valuating Tesla uh, in, in a similar manner to one of GM or Ford. It's just not applicable. 
In addition, IBM mentioned how the next wave of AI looks to replace the task-specific models that have dominated the AI landscape to date. The future is models that are trained on a broad set of unlabeled data that can be used for different tasks with a minimal fine-tuning. This is basically what is called a foundation model. In other words, a foundation model is a model in which can be applicable to any domain or task, AI in which can be applicable to any domain or task, therefore uh, enabling perhaps an exponential growth rate within the context of data. Let's check ARK Invest and hear what the analysts had to say about Tesla. Their ability to scale production is not based on how much money they have in the bank account, how much money they can spend. It's really based on management bandwidth, whether or not there's supply constraints, uh, which have been particularly relevant over the past year. And so that's where this other key input comes into play, which is the maximum annual production increase. And, you know, this is probably one of the bigger drivers on the vehicle production side of it. But then, you know, Tasha, I'll, I'll hand it to you to talk about autonomous because really the, the launch year and when adoption happens, I think is, is the biggest, single biggest driver for this model. Thanks, Sam. Robotaxis do have, you know, a very large impact on our valuation target. Um, you'll notice that in the blog, we've broken out that uh, they will contribute approximately 60% of the expected value in the model um, can be attributed to robotaxis. So next report is very interesting. And it's written on dantons.com by Andre, a member of the Dantons team who has done some excellent writing this far. Interestingly, an S-curve points towards the focus and the trajectory of a company. And it helps to understand the future growth prospects and envisions where the business is heading. Tesla's S-curve and Palantir's S-curve, according to Andre, are distinct and exciting subjects to research and which can show vastly different pictures. I think for Tesla, there's been multiple S-curves within the concept of the organization. In fact, we had the first S-curve in which was the automotive industry. Now the second S-curve in, in which one may argue is AI technologies, the third in which is robotics and so on and so forth. Balantir, Andre argues a very, very interesting case in which is that there's potential for multiple different S-curves within the context of the company. Initially, the growth prospects of any product, service, or innovation is slow and painful, and people doubt the usefulness of the product, or there are simply many obstacles in terms of how it has to get done in a resource-efficient manner, as we have seen, obviously, through Tesla's previous production hell in which they went through. This is where failure is the highest, highest stage. Past this stage, however, lies the zone of rapid growth acceleration. The general population gets comfortable with the idea and the mass adoption progresses, said Andre. From the perspective of an ambitious enterprise, you want to go for the biggest possible industries with enormous TAMs or continue embarking on new S-curve adjacents to the existing ones you're previously climbing. Both Tesla and Palantir, according to Andre, have their own interesting strategies that is worth exploring as they're very, very different. And let's unpack this question together. It's popularized by Dave Lee, an early Tesla investor who has been invested within Tesla for 10 years. Amazing conviction. He mentions how the S-curve for Tesla shows that they're climbing in several stages. And Tesla is currently ascending the midsection of the EV S-curve. Isn't that just phenomenal? 
The Tesla S-curve is just getting started, and this is in consideration of what might be called an excessive valuation, but if the valuation is appropriate, if the valuation is correct, then this shows the huge potential of this company to really exceed multiple different S-curves, namely the EV sector S-curve, in which I believe is, is still in the inception phases and is likely over the next 10 to 15 years uh, grow majorly in terms of trend. Production is rapidly expanding and the adoption by the masses is now inevitable. Tesla is on pace to conquer the EV market and by extension, swallow an outsized portion of the overall vehicle market by the end of the decade. And interestingly, that being said, this is only the first phase of domination by Tesla. Being a software company in conjunction by default means a portion of revenue comes from intangible products such as FSD. On that particular S-curve, according to Andre, we have just started ascending despite ongoing developments for years. This is a very, very controversial topic, whether Tesla will successfully achieve their goal of FSD. I think I'm very optimistic for the future, and I give them the benefit of the doubt, whilst also taking in, in, into consideration the major challenges in which are going to go ahead. In China, they're, they're, they're approaching this in a slightly different manner, namely the use of excessive amounts of LiDAR and mapping to try and achieve full self-driving. There are some major distinctions between what individuals are doing in China and what is occurring uh, for Tesla within the real day, namely the use of AI to solve real-world issues, as, as I've stated previously. This could be applicable, as Will Summerlin, the ARC analyst, mentions just beforehand. If Tesla can solve this FSD, this can lead to real-world AI within a range of different industries, tasks, and domains. And the thing with Tesla that people must take into consideration is the challenges in way to successfully um, achieve the whole S-curve, or at least surpass many expectations. And some of the challenges include the bureaucratic nature of the governments and the hurdles that one must overcome within the context of self-driving. Of course, if implemented at scale, it might even be more important. Part of the business of software margins are notoriously sky-sky-high. And here you can see on the screen a picture of Tesla's S-curve, namely EVs, FSD, energy, and AI robotics, as written on Dantons.com. That being said, this is only the first stage of Tesla's dominance, according to Andre, a very big early Tesla investor. And being a software company by default means a portion of the revenue comes from FSD, in which he is very, very excited about. And interestingly, Tesla is also on the path of becoming a serious contender in the energy production and storage. As explained in the 2021 impact reports, Tesla is designing and manufacturing a complete energy and transportation ecosystem. And when things reach massive scale, namely interconnection of cost, as well as the technology synergies, this could fuel massive value creation, in which I think is applicable. I would urge everyone to have an open mind when it comes to Tesla, whilst also taking into consideration the alternative side of the argument. There are many bear debates on Tesla. Uh, many people are concerned about Elon and his overall lack of focus, as well as Tesla's inability to successfully capitalize on the trends. And obviously, the legacy automakers in which some believe will catch up. In order to bring Elon's age of abundance into fruition, he also presented a prototype of TeslaBot. And with the labor shortages we have seen over the past year, it's well understood that the world needs a more diverse and solid workforce, one may argue. And in the end, it's not very important to what the extent of the workforce is. I think Kathy Wood has pushed this forward 
two within recent times. And I do agree once again with her philosophy. I just disagree with her stock picking. I think she's a bad stock picker, but a good philosophical thinker about the future. And what I think is that she's mentioned within recent times how innovation gains traction during tough periods of time. Namely, the fact that when there's a supply shortage, innovation, perhaps within the context of data, is used to effectively solve issues. We saw this best with COVID. Innovation came in, Palantir came into the NHS, and now solved many issues in terms of supply chains, in terms of vaccine distribution, in terms of cutting costs and saving time and producing efficiencies. And overall, Palantir now works with the government in the UK, namely with 30 plus NHS hospitals, and that's only going to grow and, grow and increase within the near future. So what we're seeing here and what I'm explaining is the fact that actually innovation is catalyzed, is used more commonly when there are periods of chaos. And therefore, uh, this pushes society forward for good, one may argue. In the end, it's very, very important to understand this philosophy and to understand whether you agree or disagree. I, for one, do believe that this is true. We've seen this within the context of supply chain, within the context of the Ukraine war, within the context of vaccine distributions, within the context of COVID. And now, according to Andre, uh, this is going to be used within the context of Tesla's bot, namely the labor shortages in the future, which may occur and therefore will bring this age of abundance. As Elon stated during the cyber rodeo event that marked the completion of the first stage of Giga Texas building, the Tesla bot is focused on the company's development and the next visionary endeavor. On the other hand, when it comes to software company Palantir, there is very, 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 a, a majorly diverse and, and differentiated S-curve in which is actually appearing. Palantir is industry agnostic, and the goal of the company is to solve the most complex problems whenever they arise. And across industries, Palantir has spread their tentacles and latched onto everything that has the potential to become great or fixes uh, major issues within society. As I mentioned beforehand, namely the COVID crisis, Palantir was fundamental towards the vaccine distribution. It was fundamental towards solving the supply chains. It's fundamental now towards the major issues which are occurring within Ukraine and, and Russia. Palantir is at the forefront. It's probably one of the most important software companies in the world, in my opinion. As you can see, this is a very different S-curve, a very, very interesting S-curve. And the whole thesis behind this is because Palantir is industry agnostic. It's applicable to every single industry. There's no limit to what Palantir can do. And if they successfully achieve their aim of becoming the operating system of the fourth industrial revolution, this could be an exponential investment, uh, one may argue. But interestingly, as you can see, Palantir's S-curve is really just common within the concept of AI, machine learning, mobility, automotive, robotics, space, natural resources, and etc. etc. A very, very interesting article uh, that I highly recommend you check out on dantons.com. And Andre pushes forward this just ultra-contrarian view. It's amazing. The fact that Palantir lacks, lacks a clear S-curve, and they're climbing multiple different S-curves in conjunction. He says that Palantir is becoming intertwined within every single imaginable S-curve in which society is facing. A range of different inflection points are recurring in conjunction. Palantir at the core want to solve issues regardless of their origin, as more problems solved help them to solve the problems that might arise in the future. Palantir, in other words, learn, adapt, and therefore overcome. This was just an amazing article by Andre, um, and he goes on. I, I love reading this. It was just utterly, utterly amazing. He says that the following industries or areas of interest are ones that Palantir has a stake in at the moment, namely manufacturing, healthcare, supply chains, energy, finance, and more. They are just industry agnostic, and Andre pushes forward the argument, as stated beforehand, that Palantir has multiple different S-curves. This is not one S-curve. There's multiple different S-curves within one, and, and therefore, Palantir has the potential to really produce an exponential um, investment opportunity, some may argue. With some of these S-curves, Palantir has already integrated themselves within the organization, within the industry for over 10 plus years, namely the use of military data, 
data governance scene, the overall governmental sector, specifically within the US. Some Andre states are not well developed yet or not implemented enough to successfully call them um, finished. And, and, and you can mention some here, including supply chains, some are very new, including uh, the crypto space and the, and, and the overall legal um, S-curve in which Palantir is facing. So what he's saying here is is, is very true. The fact that there's multiple different S-curves for Palantir, some of them are much more mature, however, others, on the other hand, are, are, are very um, young and actually still in the inception phases. And with all such encompassing tactics, the management team has chosen the hard path. One would almost argue that they're spreading their focus too thin. However, if executed properly, the solutions provided by Palantir will be default throughout the very fabric of the business landscape. So Andre is mentioning there, um, very interestingly, how Palantir perhaps is, is spreading himself too thin by being uh, separated across all of these different S-curves. However, on the other hand, if it does succeed, this could be uh, a wonderful investment opportunity. And in a sense, both companies are positioned themselves at the forefront of progress and innovation are very likely to play a bigger role than they already are. I think in the case of Palantir, Alex Karp has mentioned for years, right, that Palantir is going to be the most important software company in the world. It already is. It already is playing a fundamental role in terms of Sky Compute, Edge AI, the features in Ukraine and Russia, the fact that they distributed all the vaccines within the Western world via their software. Palantir is the most important software company in the world, and I think they're going to play an even bigger role within society. From an investment perspective, of course it matters what your average price is. Of course it matters when you get in. Valuations do matter. But what I'm saying is that I think Palantir has the potential to become one of the most important software companies in the world if it isn't already, uh, and therefore perhaps could provide a wonderful investment opportunity within the context of the government and the commercial growth expanding majorly within the future. I'm very excited for Palantir. Mr. Codestrap was back in town, and it's just amazing when he speaks. Everyone just looks at him like a god. It's just amazing, technical, and very, very interesting to listen to. He mentions within a recent interview with CEO Amit from Ordea that a data mesh is a major new paradigm shift which will occur within the software realm. And currently there is a, there's this idea of kind of centralization of data warehouse in which everyone gets their data analytics tools from. However, now the data mesh enables true autonomy of teams. And this cutting data mesh solution, according to Codestrap, is brilliant. And Palantir Foundry is at the forefront of this chain. And Codestrap explained how the central data warehouse is collapsing and the current conventional methods of software as a service and the overall models are stuck within siloed and very hard to control, in which is obviously causing much friction for organizations. This overall indicates the paradigm shift in which is going to occur within the near future. And there is currently a disjointed experience as individuals have to jump between 15 applications plus in order to derive utility within the concept of an organization. This causes huge friction for developers, and it's just utterly, utterly ludicrous. Codestrap explains how this is going to change within the near future. Let's hear what Codestrap had to say with Amit. Most platforms have, like, all have usage-based pricing. Um, and they all have multiple tiers, right? It's not just usage-based. Freemium, everyone's kind of got a freemium, right? They've got like the, the one-off team price, which is de generally a different rate. They've got right. like the, the 10 plus users rate, you know, like there's a ratcheting system. And finally you get to enterprise at the other end, you know, where like, and most of the time they hold you hostage with security features under enterprise and they'll cap expenditures for certain things they know you're going to use a lot of. It's just weird that like no one at Palantir thought like, oh, we need a similar model. Yeah, you need a fucking similar model because no one wants to talk to you unless you present it that way. Except for like, yeah, I mean, like, let's put this, except for the biggest companies, you know? Right, right. So, yeah.
but yeah, it's, it's I mean, just weird because you you want to know what they're going after. You're like, if all you want is some percentage of the global 2000, then what they're doing is perfect. But like as shareholders, when you hear, hear them say things like this company can 20x or there's no reason the company can't 20x, whatever, like you have to believe that they're trying to go beyond that. And so like you, right. you have to wonder, like, where's the strategy out to get there? Um, I don't know. You know, it's it's weird that they didn't think of that ahead of time, though, like because that would have been the first thing I would have, like when we sit down to launch a new SaaS product. One of the first things we talk about are the the um, rate plans, you know, that we're going to offer. And it always has to include freemium. It's always got to have to include like some ratcheted system for so we can hit all the customers who have varying needs and right. expenditures. And we won't give them the whole platform. There's a feature matrix. You know, you like start carving out the pieces of the platform that they're not going to get unless they go up. And expand it. Come on, everyone here has looked at those, right? <laughs> like, I'm sure you have looked at a million of those, right? So what is the main objective of the data mesh? Uh, and we wrote about this in detail on Dantons.com within recent times. The idea of the data mesh is to eliminate the challenges of data availability and accessibility at scale. And the data mesh allows business users and data scientists alike to analyze, access, and operationalize business insights from virtually any data source in any location without intervention from any expert data team. And simply put, the data mesh makes data accessible, available, discoverable, secure, and interoperable. And this equates to faster time to value. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, this overall kind of trend of decentralization was very much focused and hyped up around uh, the crypto scene, namely Bitcoin, the idea of finance being decentralized. What we're seeing now is actually decentralization occur within the concept of data, within the concept of these new innovative tools, namely the data mesh, namely the Sky Compute system, in which all, instead of having a centralized system, they're all decentralizing um, tools and functionalities, enabling interoperability at scale. At least that's from my perspective, a very, very interesting uh, kind of shift we're seeing within the data scene. So why do we actually need a data mesh, I think, is the correct question to ask. And from a macro perspective, there are evident drivers in which have caused society to move towards this new initiative of a so-called data mesh. And firstly, the evident increase within the business complexity combined with the uncertainty, proliferation of data, and the overall variability of data from a range of different sources has caused an utter amount of chaos. And this is in addition to the necessity for business agility, the importance of getting value from data, and the importance of organizations to change and become resilient, according to Dantons.com. And therefore, this means that society now has a vital decision to make. If, as a society, we're going to continue with the current way and conventional approach, then there's evident danger of plateauing and therefore failing to capitalize on the utility of data. However, if we use the data measure approach, this will mean that the organizations are going to capitalize on the reality of the data trend, in turn, being able to capitalize and gain the value from true data at scale. And what are the issues with the, within the com current conventional model as written on Dantons.com? Well, we stated that organizations today use a decentralized strategy to process extensive amount of data with various sources, types, and overall use cases. However, centralization requires users to transport data from edge locations to a central data lake to be queried for data analytics. This is innately time-consuming and very, very expensive. We also said another issue within the conventional model is how, as the growth rate of data expands exponentially, the current querying methodology used within the centralized management model requires changes to scale. There is an evident slowdown within the response time to new data sources. And also, as the overall sources increases within the conventional model, this is negative for business who want to gain the agility in order to drive the most value from the data. And more simplistically, perhaps you could argue that the main issue with the conventional model is the susceptibility to data 
residency and the guidelines in which prohibit data migration if the data is stored within a certain geopolitical region or if the data is stored within the EU, however, needs to be accessed by users somewhere else in the world. In other words, there's regulation when it comes to data, and the data mesh aims to solve this. Aiding by the data governance regulations can be costly and time-consuming and therefore delaying the overall time for business to analyse data. Uh, this was something that Microsoft have recently tried to address, I believe, within their recent product in which I paid close attention to. Overall, the data mesh is a new system in which decentralises operations and therefore aims to eliminate the challenges of data availability and data accessibility at scale. This is aiming to derive the most value from data. The future is very clear in terms of where it's going for data. Data has value. People need to derive the most value from that data, and therefore technology, data technology, software that's associated with data in any way, namely Palantir, is not actually a cost anymore. In my opinion, it's a total, total luxury uh, currently, and in the future it will move towards a necessity. A necessity instead of a luxury. That's the important thing to note out for Palantir. That's what I'm betting on. My future is very optimistic in terms of data ut utility, and, and, and organizations are only just realizing this. According to Josh Harris, the VP that we mentioned within another episode, Palantir is actually being adopted at mass scale now due to the fact that chaotic times are causing a catalyst for efficiencies, for productivity, for time to be saved. This is very, very interesting, and I think we're seeing new technologies such as the data mesh become increasingly important for organizations. Palantir explains that the data mesh can upgrade historical investments in data warehouses, data lakes, and other legacy infrastructure to unlock additional value. And interestingly, Palantir kind of did hit back, as we'll read, read momentarily, when it comes to the data lake uh, and the data warehouse. Palantir basically stated the organizations that are using these are, are very bad and, and they don't provide efficient and suitable solutions. Palantir meets the enterprise, wherever the enterprise may be, along the digital modernization journey. And the Palantir data mesh, according to Palantir, seamlessly integrates the enterprise's legacy systems through its interoperable architecture and automated deployment. And alternative platforms, as I mentioned just momentarily, namely the data lake and data warehouse, charge customers to put their data in and to get their data out. And the solutions themselves are insufficient. This includes the data lake and the data warehouse, namely the fact that these systems charge customers to put their data in the data lake and data warehouse and to take their data out of the data lake and the data warehouse. Obviously, this can cause huge amounts of friction when it comes to organizations. This is in comparison to the data mesh in which meets the enterprise wherever they may be along the digital journey and urge only charges to the customers for what they're actually using in comparison uh, to the conventional approaches, as I'll read momentarily. Overall, the data mesh is currently being deployed within Japan as we speak, and we kind of unfolded this on Danthans.com, wrote a report about it and included an exclusive video that we'll watch momentarily. But we overall stated that the data mesh is going to be a huge innovation within the future as organizations recognize the necessity for decentralization for empowerment of data and to really remove the friction associated with deriving the most value from data. Palantir is at the forefront of this trend. They just need to market better. They need to sell better. I've spoken to many individuals who use Palantir within their organization. And the main issue is that they cannot sell. They cannot market properly. They're using examples from the desert. They're using examples uh, from, you know, Humvees in Ukraine or Iraq or whatever. And they're using these examples to try and sell to, to commercial clients. It's just utterly, utterly, utterly absurd. And it doesn't work. At least that's the message that as Palantir investors, we know uh, is the big issue. It's a major bottleneck within the sales. They need to learn how to market better. They need to learn how to sell better. And Palantir this far has not done, done a good job. Let's watch the video from Dr. Carp to hear what he had to say on the data mesh and Palantir. Thank you.
Welcome, Japan. I've been a, a follower and, and someone interested in Japan, Japanese culture since I was a little kid uh, in all facets, movies, theater, literature, martial arts. Deeply proud of our work in Japan and grateful that together with you, we'll help make Japanese industry stronger and better and meet the challenges of tomorrow, helping Japanese customers and people and also the world to benefit from any of the technical companies and innovations in Japan to extend them with our software. Thank you for your help. So overall, very, very interesting. Few couple of weeks, few couple of months we have ahead when it comes to the markets. I'm betting on innovation being big in the future. Maybe you disagree, maybe you don't. Let's check out more reports on dantons.com to learn and educate yourself more about all the latest news when it comes to innovation within public markets. All media, all news focused on innovation, only on dantons.com.